Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, posted May 19, 2023, titled, It Was on TV, Resurrection Evidence Must Be Good. Lee Strobel, Kirk Cameron, response. Lee, you set out to disprove the resurrection. Right. Because if the resurrection is false, that, that, that's, the, that's the, the king claim exactly. of Christianity is that a man rose from the grave. Yeah, because I, I, I was a journalist at the Chicago Tribune. I saw plenty of dead bodies, and, and I've never seen a dead body come back to life after three days. I, I honestly thought I could disprove it in a weekend. Well, we don't have a whole weekend, but let's see what we can do in 30 minutes. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. And today, that sitcom star turned evangelist, Kirk Cameron. And his recent Easter episode of his TVN show called Takeaways. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But is this story too good to be true? How do we really know that Jesus rose from the dead? and that our faith in Jesus doesn't amount to believing in a fairy tale. How are we supposed to answer those questions if we haven't even read the book? <laughs> and he thinks we're dumb. Is there solid evidence outside the scriptures that confirms Jesus' resurrection? Okay, we'll go by the book. And his special guest. Lee Strobel is a New York Times best-selling author with over 14 million sold, including his most notable book, The Case for Christ. That's awesome. Because I came out of atheism uh, myself, yeah. just as you did. Yeah. And uh, today I refer to myself as a recovering atheist. Right. <laughs> I like that. I even have a shirt that says recovering atheist. <laughs> I guess that's okay. I have shirts that say former Christian. What you were attempting to do is to prove that something that allegedly happened the resurrection of Christ, yeah. thousands of years ago, yeah. actually never occurred. Right. How do you find evidence of yeah. something that doesn't exist? Well, there are techniques you can use to investigate any ancient writing. So uh, whether it's Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius, you can take these same investigative techniques and apply them to the pages of the New Testament to try to determine, is it telling me the truth? So there are a lot of historical um, um, guides that you can use to try to uh, diagnose whether or not the writer of the Gospels, for instance, is being honest when they report what they're reporting. It is sometimes possible to identify dishonest reporting, but there's no difference between someone sincere and someone sincerely mistaken, since the Gospel writers were almost certainly merely passing along what others told them, all we can tell is whether they believed it. I think it's more likely than not that the authors were true believers, but that only matters if we can establish that they were in a position to actually know. I'll give you an example. There's a criterion called the criterion of embarrassment. Um, what that means is if you're reading an ancient writing and the author is saying something that hurts their own case or is embarrassing to themselves, they're probably telling the truth. Because if they're going to make it up, they wouldn't make up something that's going to hurt their own case or embarrass themselves. This criterion of embarrassment is used almost exclusively in the realm of New Testament studies and only rarely in secular history, and for good reasons. The first of which 
is that it is entirely impossible to know what a specific individual at an entirely different time in an entirely different culture would or would not find embarrassing. Projecting our standards for embarrassment onto ancient people would be historically inappropriate. Second, there are times when admitting or inventing embarrassing details actually helps your case. It can make you a more sympathetic narrator. It can distract from implausibilities. It can lend verisimilitude. It can even make the listener think, that's so embarrassing it must be true. Even Strobel's friend, Detective J. Warner Wallace, thinks this is an ineffective argument. That principle we talk about of embarrassment, I've known some guys who, who would include embarrassing things in their lie. I have known guys who do In order that. to be perceived yeah, as... Yeah, because they want to be more persuasive with yeah. me. So it's not as though it's not possible for you. Obviously, the Gospels came to be widely accepted. So whatever literary evolution took place, as the stories were passed along in the decades before they were written down, was the phrasing and composition that was most effective at winning converts. The details included, one, whether embarrassing or not. And so I read the Gospels, and guess who discovers the empty tomb of Jesus? Women. Well, wait a minute. In first century Jewish and Roman culture, women were not considered to be reliable purveyors of information. They generally weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. They weren't considered to be credible. And so it was embarrassing in the first century to say that a woman discovered the tomb empty. The acceptance and spread of Christianity didn't happen in the courts. It happened in the marketplaces, at the wells, or in the homes of neighbors. These are places where women had influence. Just like in Lee Strobel's home, women could convert and in turn influence their husbands. The Talmud observes that a pious woman turns a man pious, and it is the mother who determines if a child is Jewish. In the circles that mattered, this was obviously not embarrassing. So why did they say that? The conclusion is they're telling the truth. That's what happened, and they're reporting it um, because they're letting the chips fall where they may. And while that doesn't give us an airtight case that we might like to have, say with the law of gravity yeah. or something like that, I find it fascinating that the only way we can believe any ancient documents as trustworthy and reliable is by using this set of standards. Right. And if we're going to believe ancient documents exactly. like the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, these things that nobody questions. Yeah. What are you talking about? Everyone questions the Iliad and the Odyssey. Both contain interference and activities of gods and the supernatural realm. Like all ancient documents, historians try to determine what elements actually happened and what elements did not. That's exactly the same way we treat the New Testament documents. There is no difference. Those are terrible examples. Exactly right. Uh, for instance, most of what we believe is true about the ancient world, most of those facts are based on one source, or maybe two sources. And yet, for exa example, um, um, to, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. I don't think we would agree on standards for confirmation and corroboration. And, and if we're going to ignore those criteria and say that the Bible is not reliable, then we've got to throw every other document of antiquity out of the way, too. We, we don't believe in Julius Caesar. Right. We don't believe in Cleopatra. Right. We don't believe in any of that stuff because we have no proof. I can affirm that Julius Caesar was probably a Roman military commander while simultaneously doubting that a seer told him to beware the Ides of March. There's nothing inconsistent about this historical methodology. I can affirm that Cleopatra was probably a ruler of Egypt 
while simultaneously doubting that she successfully used divination and magic to secure her power. There's nothing inconsistent about this historical methodology. Jesus was probably crucified. He probably didn't walk on water. There's nothing inconsistent about this historical methodology. We assume that all documents contain some mix of true and false information. There are actually 110 facts about the life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus in ancient sources outside the Bible, documented by uh, the historian uh, Dr. Gary Habermas in his book, The Verdict of History. Mm. Um, and so he goes through all these. These are um, references to Jesus in documents that um, do, you know, are not part of what we would consider to be Holy Scripture. Here Lee is referencing an out-of-print book from 1988 with no electronic version available so I wasn't able to get a copy in time for this video to go through these 110 facts for myself. I found the relevant passage in Lee's Case for Christ book. I knew that our brief conversation had only scratched the surface. Under my arm, I was carrying The Verdict of History, which I had reread in preparation for my interview. In it, historian Gary Habermas details a total of 39 ancient sources documenting the life of Jesus from which he enumerates more than 100 reported facts concerning Jesus' life, teachings, crucifixion, and resurrection. What's more, 24 of the sources cited by Habermas, including seven secular sources and several of the earliest creeds of the church, specifically concern the divine nature of Jesus. Sadly, no details are given other than this bean count, as only seven of these sources are secular, that would mean 11 are church-generated which means they cannot be fully independent of the New Testament. They'd be regurgitating gospel details. One of the most popular videos on my channel is this one, called Are There Authentic Secular Writings About Jesus? where you can see my examination of the handful of ancient secular references. Spoiler alert, they all simply reference what Christians believe, which tells us nothing. We want corroboration of the truthfulness of Christian convictions, not corroborations that Christians merely have convictions. The story of Saul of Tarsus yes. going from a Pharisee who was persecuting and killing Christians, rounding right. them up yep. and exterminating them. Why in the world would he reverse course and now become one of the most important followers of Christ and write two-thirds of the New Testament? Yeah. It what would, was in it for him if that wasn't true? That's exactly right. I mean, if you remove the resurrection, there's no motivation that makes sense to turn Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. You can't find a good motive. Exactly. Can't find a motive. If the tradition about Paul is correct, that he was going around murdering Christians, then it is a reasonable expectation that he will feel guilt over this action against his fellow Jews. Christian apologist Greg Kokel affirmed this in his latest podcast. You're taking the life of another person. Guess what happens? This is not easy even for the men. It's traumatic the first time and the second time. They get used to it because they got to do it. And after they do it for a while, guess what? It doesn't get easy in the sense that no big maybe for some people, but characteristically, it's still taking a human life. What they do is they get inured to it, and they get hardened. And then when they come home, they have PTSD, because taking a life is a big deal. If Paul's guilt or traumatic stress response was a hallucination or vision of Jesus, his own brain asking him to stop doing the harmful thing he was doing, everything we know about Paul flows naturally from this. It makes perfect sense. Some would say that the accounts of Jesus written in the Bible mm -hmm. 
were written decades after those events occurred. Yeah. So you're talking 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, these guys are writing about what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Yeah. Is that too much time to go by? I mean, I when something amazing happens to you, life-changing, like a resurrection, like someone walking on water, like someone turning water into wine, mm. when, when, when you experience something extraordinary, you remember that. And uh, so th that would be true of the disciples. Now keep in mind that they wrote the New Testament, the, the Gospels. Well. The problem is that even Christian tradition holds that two of the Gospels, Mark and Luke, were not written by eyewitnesses. They were men who never met Jesus, and most scholars, who are free from signing statements of faith in order to keep their jobs, agree that the authors of Matthew and John were similarly unlikely to have met him. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke within a generation. And um, A.N. Sherwin-White, the famous uh, historian, said that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. In his 1960 book, Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament, over the course of a few pages, A.N. Sherwin-White ponders the tempo of the development of the didactic myths and comes up with precisely one comparative example. 5th century B.C. historian Herodotus and his telling of the assassination of Hipparchus. Roughly a generation after the event, Herodotus recorded the details without including some of the legendary exaggerations known to be circulating in the populace. White declares, Herodotus enables us to test the tempo of myth-making, and the tests suggest that even two generations are too short a span to allow the mythical tendency to prevail over the hard historic core of the oral tradition. That conclusion is a massive overreach based on a single example. Indeed, Herodotus proves that it is possible for a historical core to be reported despite the existence of false narratives. This is entirely unremarkable. Of course it's possible, but this lone example says nothing about to what extent such historical accuracy is probable let alone make the wildly unfounded extrapolation that mythical acceptance is impossible in two generations. To be clear, White did no published research on the myth-making tempo. He did no studies. He performed no test. It has been 60 years since his casual observation with no follow-up corroboration. White cited one example where a historian ignored local legend and declared that occurrence to be a rule, and that's supposed to be the end of the debate. So uh, this is within the parameters of being reliable, uh, historically speaking, but here's the, here's the kicker, and this is what, it, more than anything else, brought me to faith. We have some information preserved for us that can be dated back so early, you cannot write it off as being a legend, because we know the Apostle Paul was Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians, one to three years after the death of Jesus, he's on the road to Damascus. We technically don't have any first-hand reports from Paul about whether his experience was on the road to Damascus, nor any details whatsoever other than it was some kind of vision. So we don't know this. Many people believe this is when he was given a creed, a, an eyewitness-based creed of the early church that he later sent to the church in Corinth. Other people say it was three years later when he went to Jerusalem and he met with two eyewitnesses, Peter and James, who were named in this creed as eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Um, but either way, this means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, a report about the resurrection was already in existence. No, this is entirely conjecture. All we know for sure 
is that Paul received this creed before he penned 1 Corinthians around 52 AD. Any time in that first 20 years is equally possible. There's no evidential reason to prefer earlier rather than later, other than wishful thinking. Now, personally, it doesn't matter to me if the creed is from the same week Jesus died or 20 years later. The question is, do we have reason to believe it accurately reflects reality, or is it merely hearsay and legend? Uh, a fair question. A very fair question. Uh, does anybody have the answer to that? So in other words, we have preserved for us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, a creed, an eyewitness-based creed of the earliest Christians. Again, Lee has no basis for labeling it an eyewitness-based creed other than wishful thinking. We don't have first-hand accounts from anyone in the creed to verify it. We can date that creed back to within months of oh. the death of Jesus. One of the great historians, um, James D.G. Dunn, said this creed, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a creed within months of the death of Jesus. We absolutely cannot. Dunn is guessing and wishing. Mark Herman says over and over and over that they're in the 30s. No. <laughs> why do people say that? You know, I think the, I'll tell you why I think people say that. They say that because scholars have called those pre-Pauline creeds, and people reading that who aren't New Testament scholars don't seem to understand what that means. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they were creeds that were devised before Paul became a believer. Pre-Pauline creed means that they were creeds that were circulation before Paul wrote them down in his letters. If you say that, say, Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 was pre-Pauline, what you mean is that it, it was circulated before Paul wrote it in that letter. And so that could have been in the 50s. On what basis would people say that it was circulating in the 30s? So there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. We got a newsflash goes right back to the beginning. Legends and exaggerated stories can pop up in minutes and hours. You've experienced this in your own life. This is Lee once again overconfidently and irresponsibly overstating his case. These are the kind of unsupported claims that helped destroy my faith in Christianity. There are people through history who've made the claim that they are the Messiah. Nobody except Jesus, though, fulfills the ancient prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, prophecies that included things like how he would be born of a virgin. I did a whole series of videos on Lee's flimsy case for Christmas including debunking any notion that the Old Testament clearly prophesied a virgin birth. I repeat, there is nothing within the text as it stands, which on its own indicates that a virgin is in view. Quite to the contrary, any focus set on this part of Isaiah's oracle is rather missing the point altogether. How he would die, the time frame in which he would die. Um, things that only he could fulfill. The gospel writers were actively looking for Old Testament passages that they could connect to Jesus' life, with no regard as to whether those passages were meant to be prophetic. They are not subtle about this. This claim by Lee is no more impressive than any sequel following up on events from the original. In fact, if Jesus is not the Messiah, there will never be a Messiah because nobody can go back and fulfill things that needed to be fulfilled before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So if Jesus isn't the Messiah, there never will be a Messiah. On this we can agree, there will never be a Messiah. Were you a Jewish atheist, Lee? What kind of atheist thinks we should be expecting a Messiah? So I look at um, what I call the four E's. 
I love acronyms and I love alliteration. <laughs> so so I. you have four E's, it helps us to remember. Yeah. And Easter's coming up. So the first yeah. one you talked about, execution. Right. Jesus was executed right. by crucifixion. Right. If Jesus lived, then Jesus died. I have no problem with this. Carry on. The second one, you yeah. talk about um, early accounts. Yes. Uh, what, what is the first report that we have that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah, the first report comes in a um, letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. We call it First Corinthians. Yeah, I think we got this covered. We got a news flash that goes right back to the beginning. Far too quick to write it off as being a legend. There's no such thing as a time period too short for someone to be mistaken or to tell a lie. Either of those things can happen in a second. Your embarrassing misuse of that Sherwin-White quote notwithstanding. Lee's claim that it was early or eyewitness-based is wishful thinking, not data. Why is the empty tomb so important? Well, if Jesus bodily rose from the dead, we believe this was not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection, um, then the tomb must be empty. Before I get excited about an empty tomb, you'll need to convince me that there was a tomb in the first place. But we'll get to this. And is it? Well, what we find out is, when you look at history, what you find out is even the enemies of Jesus admitted it was empty. How do we know? We know because the reports about the enemies of Jesus claiming the disciples stole the body are still inside the Bible, not from without. Note that this detail isn't in Mark, the first gospel, but rather first appears in later gospel Matthew. I agree the author likely put it in as a response to a critic dismissal, but now we're talking about 30 years after the events, long after a body in a tomb could be established. These critics were likely merely granting the tomb for the sake of argument and demonstrating the latitude of explanations. Proposing an alternate explanation for a hypothetical isn't the same as affirming or confirming a historical fact. Here was my way around this when I was an atheist. I said, whoa, wait a minute. I'll tell you why the tomb was empty. The body was never in it. Exactly. Don't you know they didn't bury crucifixion victims? They allowed them to be eaten by the birds. They threw them to the dogs. They, they wouldn't allow the, the um, satisfaction of a burial. So uh. the, the reason the tomb's empty is the body was never in it in the first place. That wasn't a universal fixed rule. But it was absolutely the thing that most often happened. Well, I ran up into a problem with that, and it's called archaeology. Because <laughs> guess what? Archaeologists discovered the buried bodies of crucifixion victims, at least two of them. Yes. Well, two buried victims doesn't change the fact that most were not buried. Most people don't win the lottery, even though some people win the lottery. One of them um, actually had... A, the spike still through his heel bone and a piece of the olive wood of the cross still attached to it. And yet he was buried. Yes. So what does this tell us about whether Jesus was buried? It is possible that he was, but still most likely that he was not. So we do know that some crucifixion victims were buried. And as a matter of fact, Roman law did allow for the burial of execution victims in certain circumstances. So my explanation went out the window. Your explanation didn't go out the window. It's still the most likely scenario, entirely in the window. I'll give you another example along those lines. Um, I used to think, and a lot of skeptics say, oh, oh the, the appearance of Jesus risen? Hallucinations. Hallucinate. They were just hallucinating. Oh, there you go. That explains it all the way. It can explain it all the way, depending on how you define they. See my No Resurrection Required videos. I said, now, Dr. <clears throat> Collins, wouldn't you admit to me these disciples didn't encounter the resurrected Jesus? They merely had hallucinations. And he looked at me and said, Lee, that's not possible. I said, why not? He said, Lee, you have to understand what hallucinations are like. They're like dreams. 
Dreams happen in individual minds. They don't right. spread like the common cold. Hallucinations happen in individual minds. Indeed, all it takes to explain the origin of Christianity is for one person, perhaps Peter, to have had a hallucination and for social contagion to have taken over and done the rest. No group hallucinations are required to explain actual facts. Now, if you want to uncritically accept later claims... He said, your earliest report, your most reliable historical report in the resurrection, says 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at the same time, right? I said, yeah. He said, leave 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection. You know what is not miraculous? Someone saying that 500 people saw resurrected Jesus. We don't know anything at all about these 500. What are their names? What did they see? Where were they? When was this? Nothing. We know nothing at all. I don't need group hallucinations to explain a vague, anonymous story about a group hallucination. <laughs> and then he said, and by the way, if, this were, if these were hallucinations, the body would still be in the tomb, right? That's right. Oops, the body's gone. Has decidedly not been established by anything other than Lee's credulity. And your fourth E yeah. is eyewitnesses. Right. You have, you have eyewitnesses, and you talk about the nine ancient sources that confirm the conviction of the disciples that they really did yes. see the risen Jesus. Nine sources that confirm the conviction of the disciples that they really did see the risen Jesus. All right, let's go. So I'll, I'll ripple through those nine sources real quick. The creed that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, that's so early, um, that's the first source. Okay. Well, Paul prefaces that creed by explaining that he was told this by others. It is not something he can affirm or corroborate. It's hearsay at best, and more likely merely an indoctrination nursery rhyme. The second source is the Apostle Paul, who, said, who got to know some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, for instance, and he says in 1 Corinthians, uh, whether it's I or they, we're saying the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead. So he's confirming that the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus. Okay, look what you... We covered this for like 45 minutes. You guys remember? Third source is the book of Acts that even atheist scholars will admit contains the summaries of teachings of the early church. Summaries of the teachings of the early church is not the same as convictions of the disciples. We know that the church believed it. If we take Acts at face value, which I do not, all we have is Peter's experiences. The rest of the disciples are silent and generally not even present. Again, all we need is Peter alone to have had a vision, and everything is explained. So there's Peter mm. confirming. The next four sources are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, but Matthew and Luke copied most of Mark word for word. So these are clearly not independent sources. And few scholars attempt to argue that the author of John didn't have a copy of Mark as well. Counting these as four separate sources is highly problematic. The four Gospels, there are nine appearances in those four Gospels of the risen Jesus. Aha! Now this actually is something. Mark doesn't have any narrated risen Jesus appearances, so that wouldn't count. But the appearance stories in Matthew, Luke, and John are independent. That is to say, they are wildly different, without overlap, and cannot corroborate each other. But to Lee's credit, they would potentially add to his count. Unfortunately, this is where the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 works against Lee. If it was so well known that Paul quoted it, then it was known to the Gospel authors as well. What we see in the Gospels appears to be independent attempts at fleshing out details of that narrative skeleton. This is not dissimilar to Ben Kenobi establishing this vague narrative in the very first Star Wars film. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. 
I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. And then later creators coming along and fleshing it out, with movies and entire television series about the exploits of the Clone Wars. The later stories are still clearly literarily dependent on the earlier. It's not attestation. But then we have two sources outside the Bible. We have writings by people who sat directly under the teachings of the eyewitnesses themselves. So, for instance, Clement. He was ordained by Peter himself. We have some writing from Clement, and he never makes this claim about himself. Around a hundred years after the fact, Church Father Tertullian wrote that Clement was ordained by Peter, and Irenaeus wrote that Clement had conversed with the blessed apostles. But this rings more like echoing revisionist tradition than informed reportage. In any case, Clement wasn't so influenced by Peter that he bothered to mention it himself. And he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi in the very first century where he talked about the confidence the apostles have about Jesus being the Son of God because of the resurrection that they had been eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. The only document considered authentically by Clement is the first epistle of Clement to the church in Corinth. I'm going to assume Lee meant to say Corinth instead of Philippi, since the latter doesn't seem to exist. In chapter 42 of that letter, Clement writes to the apostles, having therefore received their orders, and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and established in the word of God, with full assurance of the Holy Spirit, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. Notice that this does not say that the apostles were eyewitnesses of risen Jesus, only that they were assured of Jesus' resurrection. Just as Lee is assured of Jesus' resurrection, but is not a witness. And then Polycarp. Polycarp was appointed by John to be bishop at the church of Smyrna. The one letter we have from Polycarp does not mention being appointed by John. The early biography, The Martyrdom of Polycarp, similarly doesn't mention a connection between Polycarp and John. No, it's not until around 180 AD that Irenaeus makes a vague connection between Polycarp and unnamed apostles, along with a strange story about John running out of a bathhouse. Semi, why we know the story of Jesus isn't a legend, cold case Christianity response, for a more detailed discussion. Suffice to say, this connection is spurious. And he wrote a letter uh, in which he mentions the resurrection no fewer than five times and says the apostles, where do they get their confidence um, from the resurrection of Jesus? Because they know that he returned from the dead. And at least three of these mentions are Polycarp quoting other New Testament writings. So he can't be considered an independent source any more than Lee Strobel quoting the Bible would be an independent source. So that's nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. Call me a pessimist, but it seems you have one actual source and then a bunch of derivative works. It was because of your skepticism and your questions and your doubts about Christianity that led to uh, the creation of books that are now helping atheists um, with the case for Easter, the case for Christ. I'm living proof that books like Lee's help turn Christians away from Christianity by providing such a non-skeptical, too far-reaching, overly credulous look at the evidence. I don't get this. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. If the Christian answers had been better, perhaps I wouldn't have gone looking elsewhere like in videos like this one. That's so like God to be able to do that, to take things that look like an attack mm. on the truth yeah. and actually use them, them to deepen the truth. Truth is that which conforms to reality. Truth cannot be harmed. No one need fear it. I prayed at the beginning of my investigation, and this is what I prayed. I said, God, I don't believe you're there. In fact, I'm convinced you're not. 
But if you are... That's kind of an oxymoron, I know, though. Who are you talking but, to? But I have nothing to lose. I, I figure okay. I have nothing to lose. All right. So I said, God, I don't believe you're there, uh, and I'm convinced you're not. But if you are, I would like to know you. Simple prayer. All I wasted was 10 seconds if he doesn't exist. But if he does exist, says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God rewards those who sincerely seek him. I prayed a very similar prayer many times as I was trying to cling to my Christianity. And I still send it up every once in a while. As Lee said, what do I have to lose? That said, I'm still waiting on that reward. It was great to have Lee Strobel here today to dig deep into evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Here's our takeaways. I know this is the gimmick of Kirk's show, but I don't think we need the recap. Instead, let's take various clips of Lee and Kirk out of context, just for fun. What gave you mm. the conviction that there was no God? The mere concept of an all-loving, all-knowing creator of the universe was just kind of absurd on the surface of it. The uh, idea that uh, pe uh, God created people was probably not true, but that people created God because they're afraid of death. So they made up this idea mm. of a, a supernatural um, being and an afterlife to make themselves feel better about dying. The idea of a God seemed to me, like you said, was a crutch for weak people yeah. who couldn't answer big questions and it made them feel better. First step was when I was in middle school, I started asking those embarrassing questions like, why would a loving God allow pain and suffering? You know, why would God send people to hell? And nobody wanted to talk about it. So I thought, oh, I get it. They don't want to talk about it because there's no good answers. I mean, you can't trust what the New Testament tells you about Jesus. All right, that's enough of that. Well, that's all for this episode of Takeaways. Thanks for watching. And if you enjoyed this show, please tap on the subscribe button to never miss an episode. And of course, you can catch up on past episodes by tapping on the thumbnail on screen now, and I'll see you over there. We'll see you here next time for more great conversations. Later.